If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Great Reputations, our series exploring the divisive legacies of some of history's biggest names. In today's episode, we'll be discussing statesman, politician and military leader Oliver Cromwell. Born in 1599, Cromwell spent the first few decades of his life in relative obscurity before embracing religion and rising to prominence in the 1640s. Thrust into national politics against the backdrop of a crisis between King Charles I and Parliament, Cromwell joined the Parliamentarian Army upon the outbreak of civil war in 1642. Earning a reputation as a good military leader, he became a commander of the Parliamentarian New Model Army. He was a key figure in the execution of Charles in 1649 and ruled as Lord Protector from 1653. His reconquest of Ireland from rebel forces during this period is notable for its brutality, particularly the siege of Drogheda. When Cromwell died in 1658, he was succeeded by his son Richard, but his rule was short-lived and Charles II returned to the throne in 1660. Discussing Oliver Cromwell's complex life and legacy today are Ronald Hutton, Professor of History at the University of Bristol, and Mark Stoyle, Professor of History at the University of Southampton. I thought we should start by talking, well asking you in fact, what you think we should be talking about. What are the controversial aspects of Cromwell and his legacy? I think that Cromwell has always been controversial, largely because he did something which no other British person has ever achieved, and did it rather violently, and then left no obvious legacy, no dynasty, no settled form of government, just this meteor-like career in what was already a deeply divided country. Mark, what's your take? I think that Cromwell, you know, as Ronald said, has been controversial throughout his life and ever since. So many different people have seen so many different things in Cromwell, things to hate, things to admire, things to be in awe of. And almost every historian has been puzzled in some ways by the contradictions in Cromwell's character. And that's meant that he's been a sort of a constantly shifting presence in our history and thinking and writing about history ever since his death. Mm. And we'll get into some of that in a minute, I suspect. I wanted to start by asking you both the extent to which you think that he was motivated by social status or religion or war and how far back through his life we can trace those motivations. I think there's a huge change. 
in that for about half his life, he's a not terribly ambitious, not terribly impressive, minor provincial gentleman. He shows no inclination whatsoever to want to rise above small-town bigwig. And then he ceases to be a bigwig. He's chucked out of the small town. He's broken politically and socially and rises again as a frenetically ambitious, deeply devout, rather violent, born-again Christian uh, and never looks back. And we see so little about Cromwell in his, his early years. His, his early years, the first 40 years of his life, are not entirely lost to us, but we can only really recapture fragments. And his own voice, in fact, only begins to emerge quite late in his life with some of the early letters that have survived. And there, I think, as Ronald said, we can already see that sort of that deep Christian faith, which he seems to have really uh, embraced later on in his life, and this sort of Protestant zeal, which is already clearly there in the 1630s, which which guides the whole of the rest of his life thereafter. So, I mean, to come back to what you said at the beginning, Matt, I think that religion is, is key to understanding Cromwell. He does have a keen sense of social status, but perhaps not always in the way that, that people today might think. And I also think that one of the, the key sort of things to understanding his character is his strong sense of patriotism. He was a zealous Christian, but also very much an English patriot, though never a, a xenophobe, I think. It's interesting that the increasing religious nature of his character is the thing that really changes and shapes his story into the second part of his life. Is that fair to say, do you think? It's totally fair to say that. The great gift that getting born again gives to Oliver is it plugs him into a very effective network, that of the radical Protestants of East Anglia, commonly known as Puritans. And this, in the end, gets him elected to Parliament in 1640, thereby plunging him into the centre of politics at the collapse of the Stuart regime and the beginning of the events that make the English Civil War. He's elected on a Puritan ticket in a campaign run by extremely effective Puritans and becomes part of a Puritan lobby in Parliament. And I think that that certainly explains his um, his sort of rise in the political sphere. But we could also use that religious zeal, I think, to explain his his military success. Because again, this is something there is there's no uh, sort of sign before the Civil War that, that Cromwell has any sort of military experience. Once the wars begin, he is a remarkably successful soldier almost from the beginning. And there are many reasons that one could put forward to explain that. But I think one is that the the religious zeal that drives him on is something that also um, fills the hearts of the men who serve under him. And he actually sets out uh, to recruit a very sort of highly motivated Puritan soldiers. And that gives them a spirit, a zeal, which pushes them on to military successes that less committed soldiers might not have won. How far can we take our view of this zeal? Is it fair to see him as a Puritan jihadi? Is that taking it too far? I would say it's not too far to call him a Puritan jihadi, if only because I've actually done it myself. You can use that kind of expression because, first, Cromwell divides the world into the friends of God and the enemies of God, and he does that right from the beginning after his conversion. And that means that the enemies of God deserve no mercy. He hurries royalists mercilessly even before the civil war breaks out. And once it breaks out, he really enjoys killing. His very, very first uh, 
armed engagement, which involves shots or blows being exchanged, is almost a year into the Civil War in Lincolnshire. And he describes exultantly how he and his men chase the defeated royalists on horseback for six miles, doing execution on them. And that kind of attitude and that phrase runs through his entire career. He likes killing enemies, and his enemies are God's enemies. And I can't come up with a neater definition of jihadi than that. I mean, I think on on the first sort of part of the phrase Puritan, I think, you know, almost all scholars would agree. I mean, there are lots of different de- um, definitions of Puritan, uh, and people can, can hair split about that, but there's no doubt that he is a zealous Protestant. On the word jihadi, I mean, I agree with all the points that Ronald's made. I mean, I think if one takes the sort of the word jihadi in the sort of the, the sense of someone who is is driven on by that sense of fighting a war, for God, against enemies in the world, and even against the enemies within oneself, if you like. Um, Cromwell absolutely fits that bill. I suppose that one could say, in the way that the word jihadi is bandied about now, sort of perhaps rather loosely in the West, it tends to be seen as someone who is, you know, an absolute extremist. I'm not sure I would see Cromwell as quite as extreme as all of that. So I might prefer the the word a, a Puritan warrior or a Puritan soldier, but I can absolutely see, you know, how that term could very effectively be used to describe Cromwell. So you talked there about his skills as a military leader. Was there a moment or a battle that sealed his reputation as a good commander? There are actually two, in my opinion. Uh, The first was the point at which people down in London said, hey, we're beginning to notice this guy. He's on the map. The second was when he emerged as Parliament's greatest cavalry commander. And they're about a year apart. The first one's July 1643, when... Cromwell's side is losing rather badly. It's being pushed out of Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. And as part of the pushing out of Lincolnshire, Oliver's own group of people are defeated, and he has to fall back on Cambridge. And he is noted as one of the few people who keep on fighting, who are prepared to go down in the last ditch and can actually beat bodies of the enemy in skirmishes. So that's the moment when they say, we're going to back this guy. He's definitely mattering. And the second point a year later is the great battle of Marston Moor, the biggest battle of the English Civil War, when Cromwell's Eastern Association cavalry flatten the best of uh, the king's horsemen under his nephew, Prince Rupert, directly opposite. And that swings the battle into a crushing victory for Parliament. And after that, Cromwell is simply the darling of most of Parliament. He's always got a majority on his side. And I mean, for me, I think it would very much be Marston Moore is, is the battle that really swings things. As Ronald said, that that particular engagement is is the biggest battle that's been fought on English soil probably since the Wars of the Roses, one of the two biggest battles ever. Cromwell's intervention there is is vital. Even though the King's army is, is quite heavily outnumbered, it looked as if they might be going to win the day. If they had, the whole of the north of England might well have gone over to them. But Cromwell's intervention actually helps to swing things. He's able to defeat Prince Rupert, who's seen as, you know, the greatest of all of the royalist commanders. And although we can't put all of the credit for that to Cromwell, he's very much assisted by uh, a band of Scottish cavalrymen who he rather airbrushes out of the picture later. Uh, Nevertheless, that victory is a decisive victory. I think the defeat of the King's army at Marston Moor made it almost inevitable that in the end, um, the Parliament would win. And Cromwell 
deservedly gets much of the praise for that. But also going back to something that you said earlier, Matt, there's no doubt that he sort of massages, you know, the, the, the news reports and so forth. And his role in that is seen as really decisive by people in the South. So from that point on, he is very much regarded by many on his own side as, you know, the greatest of their commanders, I think. We should talk about that massaging then. Was it the case that Cromwell was very conscious of his image and his reputation even at this stage? And did that apply both politically and militarily, I suppose? The answer to both is yes, indisputably. He's not the only parliamentarian commander, even not the only regional parliamentarian commander to appreciate the importance of the mass media. And he's not the first, but he's brilliant at doing it. We don't quite know how he does it, whether it's Cromwell himself or whether Cromwell has friends and agents that do it for him. But every time he fights a local action, it's magnified in the London papers as a tremendous victory. Every time he's part of a team effort locally, the rest of the team gets brushed out of the way, and it's Cromwell that's spotlit as the hero. And this goes on throughout his career. And I mean, I think you can see that in his own letters, for example, that he writes back after some of these victories. And we've been talking about Marston Moore. And it's interesting that his own letter written after that, he said, well, you know, we, we swept the enemy before us and it was it was us who did it and a handful of Scots, you know, so they're, they're very much sort of, um, you know, pushed to the sidelines. And to come back on something else that, again, we've just mentioned that I think it's important to to stress to, to listeners that this is a, a mass media war in a way that the censorship sort of broke down that had been maintained up until the time of the Civil War. There are masses and masses of news pamphlets and diurnals all over the place, all over the country, particularly in London, but other places as well. And so people are actually hearing about what's going on in the war, reading about it, being read to about it all of the time. And this really does help, as Ronald said, to magnify Cromwell's name and push it into every corner of the country in a way that would have been probably unimaginable you know, before the civil wars. So the importance of the London media in his rise is not to be ignored. Did this self-promotion help or lead to obscuring any figures who would otherwise have got more credit? There's quite a bunch of gentry parliamentarians in East Anglia who are Cromwell's equals in the first year or so of the war and are largely forgotten by history because of the way in which their effort is packaged. I mean, little but significant actions like capturing a place called Crowland, which is in the the marshes of Lincolnshire, a royalist stronghold. It's really clearly a team effort. And really, Cromwell as a cavalry commander is not much involved in what is really an infantry action. And yet in the history books, as in the newspapers, it goes down as one of Cromwell's first great victories. So to get to the sort of crux of it, how key a factor was Cromwell in the outcome of the Civil War? It's really, really difficult to answer the perennial question of would the war have been won by Cromwell's side without Cromwell? I think the answer is probably yes, because in the key battles, the royalists tend to be outnumbered and fighting uphill. And that's classically the case in the battles in which Cromwell won. And so you don't actually need a genius in charge of the cavalry. All you need is somebody who knows his job. 
And there were certainly other people around who did that. So I think without Cromwell, Parliament would have won the Civil War. It's just that with Cromwell in charge, Parliament wins the war with a true champion of radical Protestant religion. And that alters the nature of the victory. It alters the politics quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, I would have to concur with that. I think that, you know, if Cromwell had never been born, Parliament almost certainly would have won the Civil War. And I think that's because they have so many advantages that the Royalists don't have. And one could sort of list them. I think the the possession of London, which has always been, you know, the centre of power in this country, the possession of a fleet. The king really only had a sort of a ragbag navy that he put together from sort of odds and ends here and there. And then probably the most important thing of all was the intervention of the Scots on Parliament's side in 1643 to 4. Um, that actually brings in a very powerful army over the, the the northern borders of England, which in a way sort of stabs the northern royalists in the back. And I think the sheer weight of numbers, resources, organisation in the end would have told. So I think that Parliament probably would have won in any case. But as Ronald said, I think it's the it's the presence of Cromwell and the fact that he is so important in the sort of the crucial army that wins the war for Parliament that makes everything different afterwards. And I think the the remarkable things that happened after 1646, hard to imagine without Cromwell having been there. So I think that's the the real difference that he makes. Mm. One of the areas of controversy about Cromwell are his attitudes to power and the balance between seizing power and political power. What are the key factors, do you think, in those areas of discussion that we should consider? The first is that Cromwell has if not a natural drive towards power, a natural drive towards glory. This relentless self-promotion that marks his career during the Civil War is, is that of the man who wants to get to the top. But what we don't know is what the top looked like to Cromwell at that time. It probably looked like what Parliament promised him, which is the income of a nobleman and a peerage. Uh, so he could then retire to a country estate when his time came. But as time goes on, it's pretty clear that Cromwell still feels this nagging sense of God's purpose. And when he was faced with the option of uh, becoming a, a wealthy, titled nobody, it seems he discussed going to Germany to fight in the wars of religion there on the Protestant side. So clearly Cromwell is not happy unless his restless, ambitious, uh, frenetic kind of personality is in action, an action that keeps on carrying him and his cause ever onwards and upwards. And I think that the power that he sought was really the the power to, to push through the sort of the godly reformation, which was really at the heart of his character. And I think the idea of gaining huge amounts of sort of wealth and personal sort of status, if you like, if that was at the price of losing out on the, the prize of godly reformation, that was something that he wouldn't have wished to take. So I think, again, it's the religious zeal that drives him on. And of course, after 1646, with the defeat of the, the Royalist army and the fact that his titular commander, Sir Thomas Fairfax, does not seem to be very interested in power and is actually quite sort of perplexed by politics, Cromwell also then sort of emerges at the top of the army, which is the single most powerful sort of body in England at that time. So sheer military power is behind him as well. And I think that would have been a very difficult thing to give up, particularly because he sees the army as the instrument through which he can forge this godly reformation in England. Do you think Cromwell's role in the execution of Charles I in 1649 says something about 
his attitudes to power, and his determination to use violence to achieve it. Certainly, killing the king is simply part of the upward trajectory Cromwell has of killing the enemies of God. And he has a way of turning savagely against people whom he's decided are God's enemies. Like most of his side, he isn't sure that the king is God's enemy until round about uh, 18 months after the war ends, in which time the king has been a prisoner. And I think what sways him is not actually the actions of the king himself, and I'm being controversial here, but his realization that most of his army, including some of its key officers, hate the king so much from the war that they don't want to deal with him. So if Cromwell deals with the king, he loses his power base in the army. And very adroitly, and he's not the only one who does this, he turns against the king and falls in with what the army wants and sees. And from that moment onwards, really, there isn't any other likely outcome than the king being put on trial and killed, even though it takes a while. I mean, certainly Cromwell does try hard to work with the king. I, I certainly think, you know, we shouldn't see him as someone who is, you know, hell-bent on destroying monarchy, you know, from the beginning of the Civil War. Um, once the war is over, the first Civil War is over, Cromwell and his allies try hard to come to some sort of agreement with the king. Some very interesting negotiations go on at that time, and I think... He certainly felt at that time it would be possible to set up the kind of system that he would have liked to have seen, and particularly the religious settlement that he would have liked to have seen with the king still in charge. But it does seem to be, and I think most scholars agree on this, it's the events of, of 1648, uh, the Second Civil War, when he and others in the army believed that Charles from his prison and Carisbrook Castle has conjured up a whole new sort of reign of blood upon the kingdom. That seems to have been the tipping point. And he is a really interesting comment he makes at this time that the earlier war, the first civil war, had been a fight between Englishmen to see who should be in charge, but that the second civil war, in which Charles had brought in the Scots to assist him, that this was designed to vassalise us to a foreign nation. And I think that and the idea that perhaps God had turned his face against Charles when he's defeated for a second time, I think that does make him feel that, you know, God has turned his face against the king. It is now time for us to do the same. And again, there's really no other way of, of moving forward in the way that he wants without taking the king out of the equation. And once he decides on that, he moves towards it ruthlessly. Interestingly, everything that Marcus said is right, but I have a slightly different view. And it's an unorthodox one. What Marcus stated is everything I believed until a couple of years ago when COVID came and I sat down in seclusion with the records and realized that the tipping point is not 1648, which we'd always been told. It's the autumn of 1647. And that's the moment when Cromwell realizes that dealing with the king, as he's been doing quite well hitherto, is not going to work, not because the king is not prepared to deal, but because the army isn't. And Cromwell's in danger of being abandoned by it. And that terrible shock makes him close with the army again in a hurry and abandon the king, who'd actually been playing along hitherto. And driven by the army, Parliament locks the king up and refuses to talk to him anymore. And it's this that provokes the Scots into invading, the provinces into rising, and the English Civil War breaking out all over again. And consistently, the army blames Charles for the whole mess, and I think wrongly, and even dishonestly. 
So in that sense, the king's fate is sealed before the Second Civil War begins. Mm. But the army play a greater role in that than is, has sometimes been considered? Yes, I, I think this. I think the basic problem is that after the Civil War, the army is left with... The army I'm describing as most of the soldiers and the officers, not Cromwell and the generals, is left with a smouldering hatred of the king. And when the generals and parliament begin negotiating seriously with him in 1647, the army turns against it. And that's the moment when Cromwell realises that negotiation with Charles isn't going to work because he's going to lose his soldiers. Had the army been disbanded after the Civil War, which is what parliament tries clumsily to do and fails, none of this problem would have arisen. There'd have been a deal with the king and Cromwell would have signed up to it. I mean, the execution of the king could never have happened without the army. It is really the army and a small group of people allied with it who drive it on. So, you know, the idea that there were large numbers of people in the kingdom who were sort of keen to see the death of the king and welcoming the death of the king is wrong. There's there's a small sort of hard core of people who are determined to get to this aim. But by this time, the army is hugely unrepresentative, I would argue, of the kingdom as a whole. Uh, so the army's presence is absolutely vital in all of this. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Once Cromwell has uh, executed the king or played a role in executing the king, does what happens next and his assuming of, of leadership tell us something about his character that we hadn't seen before? Or is it all part of this same upward trajectory we talked about earlier? I don't think we see anything different in Cromwell here. He's learned how to be a soldier and a politician in the course of the Civil War, and he's applying the same techniques because they really work. Once Cromwell is confident that the army is going to kill the king, then he not only goes along with it, but aids and abet the process for all he's worth, allowing for a certain amount of retrospective bias and sources coming in many years, years after the time. Cromwell looks like the most active of all the king's judges in encouraging a quick death sentence. We should talk about another of the major controversies about Cromwell, which is his campaign in Ireland. Can you talk through, for listeners who may not know what the controversy is, what happened, what the main points of this issue are? It's a very live controversy at the moment, and interestingly enough, it's happening more within Ireland now than between the Irish and the British. The basic facts of the case is Cromwell takes an enormous army to reconquer Ireland from the Irish rebels who had seized most of the land earlier. And he attacks two fortified towns to begin with, Drogheda and Wexford. At Drogheda, there is an enormous massacre of the garrison and probably of some of the inhabitants as well. 
at Wexford, the same thing happens, but without Cromwell actually being in control. And after that, there are no more massacres, largely because the big places surrender in time. But there's still a fair amount of cruelty when small castles surrender. Uh, Cromwell often makes an example of uh, the garrison by, by having them or at least their leaders killed. So there's a thick vein of cruelty towards the enemy soldiers running through. The real controversy is over Drogheda, because Cromwell is definitely in charge there. And a myth grew up, propagated by royalists at the time, that Cromwell had slaughtered the entire population, children, women and men. And you still hear that taught as the orthodoxy in Irish schools and from the Irish tourist board. The truth of the matter is that the soldiers inside were killed wholesale, and it was an enormous garrison, so it was an enormous slaughter. And it's actually unique in the history of the British Civil Wars for enemy soldiers inside a garrison that's been stormed to be killed in that number. So this is not business as usual, as it is Cromwell being brutal. The real question is over civilian atrocities, and it's the unarmed civilians, the women and children element that really raises the emotions. Uh, and here the evidence is inconclusive. We can be pretty certain that some civilians were killed, probably many of them, but the vast majority survived. There probably were some women and children killed. Here we come down really to one witness. Uh, who's one of Cromwell's soldiers. And we just don't know how trustworthy his testimony is, although I think it is. So really, this is a controversy that's never going to be resolved. But the certainties are practically the entire group of soldiers inside are brutally killed, some of them probably after surrendering and being promised their lives. And we can be fairly sure that some unarmed civilians died, probably including some women and children, but that's where the evidence gives out. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, Ronald has, has told the story of, of what happened, you know, as far as we can recover it from the sources. I suppose that one of the things that we should talk about as well as sort of the background to this. So, Obviously, um, before the, the English Civil War begins, there is, a, there is a huge uprising in Ireland itself, where many of the, the native inhabitants, if you like, the native population of Ireland, rise up against the Protestant settlers from England and Scotland who had come there over the sort of generations before. And there are a number of atrocities committed on both sides. Quite a number of Protestant settlers are sort of killed or stripped or uh, sort of turned out of their houses. And the news of this hits England like a sort of a thunderclap. Very much exaggerated stories of what had happened in Ireland are current. The idea gets abroad that there have been massacres of thousands, scores of thousands of people in Ireland. And many in England are horrified by this, particularly the more zealous Protestants. They sort of vow a bitter revenge on the Irish. They almost see this as the beginning of the sort of the civil wars themselves. This is the, the panic, really, that spreads and this helps to feed into the beginning of the English civil war. And so... Once the New Model Army has defeated the English royalists, um, has defeated the invading Scots and is ready to turn on the Irish, there's almost a sense, I think, amongst many of those soldiers that this is the time for revenge. And I think many of the English rank and file feel that quite strongly. Clearly, Oliver Cromwell himself shares some of the English prejudice against the Irish. Uh, there is a sense of the Irish as, as barbarous, uncivilised, as, as popish or sort of inextricably bound up with Catholicism. And I think those sorts of 
prejudices, that desire for revenge, it helps to fuel what happens at Drogheda. And it's not simply something that's ordered from the top, as Ronald said. I think it also is almost the the boiling up of these sort of repressed emotions that have been uh, in the hearts of many of these English soldiers for some time. And I think also we should just remember that, you know, what happens in Ireland in the late 1640s is dreadful, but it's not a one-off. It should be seen in the context of a long history of terrible things happening in Ireland. It's it's almost like the, the Eastern Front of the English Civil Wars, if you like. Much more terrible things happen there than happen in England. And so we need to see it as part of a continuum and not just the result of bloodthirsty Oliver Cromwell sort of blundering in and killing everyone around him. It's, it's a much more complicated story than that. You think sometimes his role in the story can be flattened or oversimplified? I think it can be exaggerated. I mean, I think there's no doubt that Cromwell is um, he is influenced by those same thoughts. He actually speaks himself of revenge for those bloody wretches who had, you know, plunged their hands in blood in 1641. Although, of course, many of the people who are killed at Drogheda are actually English royalists rather than than Irish Confederates. So, you know, he he is affected by that sense of desire for revenge uh, and desire to, obviously, again, going back to this idea of him as very much an English patriot, to stamp down again the heel of English authority upon Ireland. There's no doubt that he shares that sentiment. We should talk about the way in which he was viewed by his contemporaries. We've talked a bit about his self-mythologising almost. Do we get a sense of how he was viewed by the people around him? Very easily. There is a chorus of the same view of Cromwell from particular contemporaries, starting right at the beginning of his active military and political career and ending with his death. And it's the same view. It comes from people who worked with him, not from his enemies. And these people say, you can't trust this guy. He is sly. He is two-faced. He is two-timing. And he uses people and then throws them away like used handkerchiefs. And the difficulty for historians hitherto has been reconciling this with Cromwell's own self-representation as Mr. Devout Protestant Patriotic Nice Guy. And on the whole, historians have tended to discount Cromwell's critics to take Cromwell's view, if only because Cromwell is one of the best recorded people in early modern English history. In fact, it's hard to find many others about whom we know the same amount before the 19th century. So if you're writing a biography of him, it's an awful lot through which to slog line to line. And the amount of energy left over from reading through what other people say, and then checking that against the facts at the time, is pretty short. I'm writing about Cromwell in chunks, taking it slowly. And on the whole, I think Cromwell's critics are right, that he is extremely sly, he is extremely unreliable, and he does use and scrap people, but driven always by the absolute confidence that he's doing God's will. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating about Cromwell is that the, in his lifetime, just as today and really, you know, ever since his times, views are so divided because uh, Ronald's been speaking about the views of him, particularly within the parliamentarian ranks. Obviously, beyond that, there's a sort of there's a royalist view of him, which is is seeing him increasingly as this sort of terrifying figure. Initially, there's that sense of him as a great military leader and as someone to be feared on the battlefield. And then increasingly, there's this sense of him as some as a wrathful figure who's actually, you know, 
kill quite large numbers of people on their side. And then after the civil war is over and more and more radical things begin to happen, he is seen as, you know, the ultimate rebel, the arch rebel. And then eventually, of course, as as the regicide, as the arch regicide. And so many royalists see him virtually as, as in league with the devil himself. And I think, you know, for an age in which, you know, monarchism is a, a very much toned down these days, it's a much more sort of lukewarm, lukewarm form of monarchism. I think it's, it's hard to sort of overstate just how shocked people people were by what happened to the king. I came across a royalist badge the other day, which had sort of inscribed upon it, I fear my God, I love my king, and I abhor a rebel. And I think that's how many royalists would have thought of Cromwell. So there's there's a royalist view of him, but there's also the view of many other parliamentarians who just see him as increasingly sort of radical, disturbing figure. And I mean, as Ronald said, from the beginning of his career, I think many of his allies think this man is, is, is too zealous, he's too fierce, he's sort of breaking down everything in pursuit of victory. And more and more, I think, of people on Parliament's side see him as a, a worrying, a radical who's taking the country in areas that they never wanted to go into. And then, of course, there is the bitter hate that's felt for him in Ireland, and I think to a lesser extent, you know, by some Scots as well. So there are different views of Cromwell, you know, all over the country at this time as there still are today. Is it too simplistic to ask whether there's a moment at which Cromwell's zealotry outpaced that of the nation as a whole? Cromwell's zealotry always outpaces that of the nation as a whole. He is elected to Parliament on an extreme Puritan ticket, and quite rapidly he emerges not just as any Puritan, but as the champion of that minority of Puritans who want to be able to choose their own ministers within the national church, or indeed to scrap the national church for themselves and worship outside it. So Cromwell ends up being the most prominent champion, militarily and politically, of a minority within a minority within a minority within the nation. So even those who most of the nation would regard as religious extremists, the Puritans, regard regard Cromwell as deeply worrying. I completely concur. And I mean, this is this is Cromwell's tragedy that he achieves absolute power, but it's power resting in effect on the sort of the, the swords of the military of an army which is increasingly composed of very, very radical figures. And he, he desperately wants healing and settlement, as he puts it, to sort of to come back to a settled form of government in England. But because he is bent on a radical sort of religious structure, there is no way that the majority of English men and women will tolerate that. So he can only really remain in power through military force. He cannot bring about a religious settlement that he will be happy with, that the majority of people will be upset, well, sorry, will, will accept. And that's why in the end, um, the various sort of experiments with government that he pushes through are very unlikely to work. So exactly, he's always far more zealous than the vast majority of his fellow countrymen and women. If we were to attempt to plot the rise and fall of his reputation during his lifetime on a graph, what would that graph look like? And could we even do that? Making a graph of Cromwell's reputation after his death is easy. In his time, it's easy to make a graph if you're simply talking about well, how well known he is. And the answer is not known at all until the 1640-42 period, then quite well known, and then turns into a megastar in the Civil War and remains one, just a megastar who dominates the firmament more and more. But in terms of people liking him or not liking him, 
he's got people who like and don't like him throughout. It's just that the number of people who don't like him increases slowly and steadily throughout as he scraps and alienates more and more supporters. The graph would be a very boring one for, you know, the first two two thirds of his life. He, he would scarcely register as a blip, to be honest. But then it's the civil war that is really the making of him, the making of his reputation. And that graph would sort of shoot um, you know, exponentially upwards from 1642 onwards. And really from 1646 to 7, his, his fame is simply spreading wider and wider, not just in England, but obviously into Scotland, into Ireland, and then increasingly out into Europe as well. Um, nations beyond these shores are, are taking note of what's happening in England and Cromwell is becoming a name to conjure with not only in Europe but even you know to the far stretches of you know Jamaica the Caribbean um his 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 star is rising ever higher and as Ronald said after his death um things change but he's become a name that is sort of fixed if you like in the English popular imagination from there on in we should talk about that reputation then. What are the key shifts in that reputation and I suppose the key factors behind those shifts? Cromwell's reputation is very high among his supporters and in the government at the time that he dies. He dies in bed having uh, achieved great things, even if people didn't like what he stood for. But his regime crashes only just over six months after his death. And after that, his reputation just keeps on sinking. And his ultimate enemies, the Civil War royalists, come back into power after 1660. And Cromwell's reputation basically remains mud until the 1840s. There's, there's a lobby that tries to see better things in him, but it's not very big. The vast majority of people see him as a zealot who championed a loser's cause, which self-destructed. And even those who liked his cause disapproved of the number of radicals he scraps and alienates, and sees him possibly as the guy who missed the opportunity, who lost the revolution. What changes things dramatically, almost overnight, is the publication of Cromwell's own letters and speeches in the 1840s, edited by a Cromwell worshipper, Thomas Carlyle. And Carlyle is a brilliant advocate for Cromwell, but also so is Cromwell. His letters and his speeches make his case so persuasively. They disprove forever that he's a religious hypocrite which is what his enemies had said. They show he genuinely is devout, genuinely is patriotic, but also they gloss the whole of his career so brilliantly that they present in themselves the best possible case for Cromwell as a hero. Uh, and after that, he simply has a natural lobby. The political force of dissent that is, Victorians who don't worship in the National Church, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Quakers, see Cromwell as their champion and hero. And this is an enormously powerful lobby culturally and politically in Victorian England. Imperialists see him as the guy who got Jamaica, which is the jewel of our possessions in the Caribbean. And he's also seen as uh, a Christian Englishman uh, at a time when muscular Christianity is the bedrock of the educational system. 
He's seen as a man of the people, not too far down in the people, not working class, not even middle class, but minor gentry at a time when meristocracy is espoused. So Cromwell's moment is come, and it's really lasted till the present, uh, as being third in the poll of greatest Britons for the BBC in the year 2000. And this is entirely because of the Victorian legacy. I, I think it's actually time to take a a harder look at him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important perhaps to stress just how many people Cromwell had alienated uh, during the time of his power. I mean, he dies in a way at a perfect moment for him when, you know, his, he seems all-powerful. But as Ronald has says, that crumbles away very quickly. Uh, when the uh, the monarchy is restored in 1660, it's quite a vengeful monarchy. Um, Cromwell's body is actually uh, dug up and sort of exhibited uh, along with some of his sort of key lieutenants. And I think it's impossible, again, to, to, to overstate the extent to which the, the restored monarchy and the many people who support it are very keen to drag Cromwell's reputation through the mud and to make uh, impossible for anything like this to happen again. So there is a sort of a flood of uh, scurrilous publications against him, loads of attempts are made to, to blacken his name. All sorts of people, I think, in the sort of religious and social hierarchy as well, want to forget about Cromwell. They want to forget about any good things he may have done and sort of perhaps to, to stress the bad things that happened during the, the interregnum as it becomes significantly known. And as a result of this, very quickly for most people, for many people, I think, uh, Cromwell becomes a kind of an ogre figure. Um, and he's uh, represented in that way in all sorts of sort of popular folk traditions. I mean, I can't resist uh, sort of drawing on a, a particular one from my own neck of the woods. Um, so the, the restoration of Charles II, uh, 29th of May, uh, Royal Oak Day, um, that was celebrated uh, with great sort of uh, glee uh, in many parts of the country. And obviously this was, this was encouraged by uh, most of the sort of the local gentry and clergy. And in a number of places, uh, it's not only that the restoration of the, the monarch is celebrated, uh, but Cromwell is actually vilified and defamed. And there's a particularly good example uh, from my part of the world in Devon. In the town of Tiverton uh, on the 29th of May, in the morning, there's a sort of a celebration for the, the restoration of the king. And then in the afternoon, uh, a figure dressed as Cromwell, who's dressed in the sort of the worst rags that the town can afford, covered in soot and uh, and oil, with a bag full of oil, is then let loose upon the town, and he makes his way through the streets trying to catch people. Uh, when he does catch them, he forces their head into his bag, which is full of these horrible things, in order to blacken it. Um, and sort of to blacken them, if you like, with uh, the taint, if you like, of Cromwell's personality. Um, and this is obviously great good fun and everybody enjoys it very much. But it does show the way that um, the establishment and, and many ordinary people as well are seeking to represent Cromwell in the darkest way possible. Um, and there's a, there's a rhyme, in fact, which is current on the 29th of May, which goes, shig, shag, penny a rag, stick his head in Cromwell's bag and bang it. Um, and so these kind of things show the way that, that Cromwell's image has been sort of perpetuated in the popular imagination as something that's wholly reprehensible and bad. And as, as, as Ronald has already said, it's really only in the 19th century that this reputation begins to be rescued. There's always been a thin stream, if you like, an underground theme, uh, stream of admiration for Cromwell, but that's not the way that most ordinary English people saw him until the 19th century. But really from that point onwards, I think his reputation has grown and grown, has become better. 
And again, to go back to something that Ronald said, I think it's because he's appealed to so many different English constituencies from that point onwards. There's obviously the Republican constituency, there's the nonconformist dissenting uh, constituency, and um, strangely, there's also the sort of the imperialist, patriotic constituency. There are all of these different groups that he's been able to appeal to. And in some ways, I wonder if he may have reached his sort of apogee, uh, you know, around the turn of this century. I suspect Cromwell may not be quite as popular as he was when he was voted uh, the third greatest Englishman 20 years ago. And I wonder if that may be partly because of distaste for what happened in Ireland. But I do think Cromwell's reputation might be on the cusp, slightly on the wane. But for all of that, I think he will always remain in the, the pantheon of the great English heroes, Elizabeth I, Cromwell, Churchill. I suspect that reputation will never wholly fade. It's so interesting that his peak of reputation post his death was as recently as 2000, 2001, 2002. Do you think there's been a falling away even in the past 20 years of that reputation? I mean, that's my impression. It may be wholly wrong, but I think that um, there's always been in Ireland, you know, obviously a, a very sort of understandable sense of resentment against everything that, I, that Cromwell and his troops did there. But I think in England itself, that has not been so much thought about until perhaps recently. It's certainly more talked about in England than it used to be. So my sort of gut feeling is that Cromwell may not be quite as popular as he was, but Ronald may may well dispute that, I think. I wish I could. It would be so much more interesting if I could. Uh, In fact, I I can't even provide a ringing endorsement. I I really do not know what most people think of Cromwell at the moment. Uh, What I can say is that opinion hasn't shifted yet among most professional historians that uh, the adulatory 19th century view of Oliver still seems to be dominant among most experts in the period of the English Civil War Revolution and Interregnum. Uh, I published a book myself a couple of years back which seems to have shaken people a bit, but I'm not sure if it's assimilated yet. I, I, I will go on to suggest that Cromwell was an absolutely brilliant soldier and politician, but had a ruthless, a bloodthirsty, and an unscrupulous and self-promoting side to him. Uh, To me, that makes him more interesting, rather than making him less great. Mark, you mentioned earlier a couple of quite vivid examples of Mm. local customs, local Mm. folklore. Is it possible, do you think, to unpick those cultural views of someone like Cromwell from the historical truth of their life and their times? It's very, very difficult because um, Cromwell, as is is well known, is is one of the the individuals who's most spoken of in English and perhaps even in in wider in British folklore. So there is is a host of traditions, memories about Cromwell. More places are said to have been named after him than any other historical character. But so many of these stories, when you go back and examine them, what seems to have happened is that Cromwell is used as a figure to represent almost any prominent parliamentarian soldier or general. So many of the stories which are circulating about Cromwell are obviously not about him, but about other prominent parliamentarian figures whose role has sort of faded into the background, if you like. So I think a lot of these stories we can't learn that much from about actually what happened in the civil wars. But I think the way that 
ordinary English men and women talked about him, portrayed him in the sort of the later 17th century, the 18th and 19th century, that is fascinating because it helps us to see the way that they look back on the wars and the way that they thought about Cromwell and Charles and in fact, both of the Charleses. So there is a lot to be gained from them, but I don't think we can really rely on most of them for historical veracity. I think in this regard, as in so many, the problem of modern Britain is scrambling out from under the shadow of the Victorians. Because in Britain, Cromwell was a figure of hatred or of fun for most of the period from 1660 to 1840. In Ireland, he was regarded as a villain, but only one among many. And so on both sides of the Irish Sea, the great change in his reputation is mid to late 19th century. And it's a knock-on effect that the enormous boom in adulation of Cromwell that took place under Victoria has an impact on Ireland, where Irish nationalists react against it by turning Cromwell into the greatest bogeyman of Irish history, which doesn't seem to have been the case earlier. And he even gets into ordinary Irish folklore uh, as the bogeyman. It's the time when the curse of Cromwell becomes known as an imprecation, but it wasn't the case earlier. And so, in many ways, what remains to be seen is not so much over the 21st century, that people shift to seeing Cromwell more as a villain, less of a hero, more of a hero, but as people shift to see Cromwell as less significant overall. That might be the consequence of a revisionist history. Finally, then, how useful do you think it is to view figures such as Cromwell as products of their time, or how useful is it to judge them by today's standards? I think you can do both. Uh, as a professional historian, I should put my hand on my heart, the Bible, or any kind of religious text of my choice, and say that uh, historians should never judge past figures by the contemporary standards. And to a point, that's true, because you can't explain what they did, which is what historians are here to do, according to standards that are not their own and not those of their culture and society. But the present is always engaging with the past. The past keeps looking different from different points in the present, wherever the present happens to be. And so you can't really stop people passing judgments on people who seem to be natural friends or enemies, victims or villains, or uh, all-time super people and heroes in the past. But that doesn't shift the basic point that you can't understand somebody in the past unless you understand them in their own context. They simply matter more because of how we judge them now. And often we get to the past because something in the present draws us back towards it because of the echoes that reverberate from it. Mm, I mean, I, 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 would, I would have very much the same answer. I mean, I think there are, there are certain things that you can see that are almost consistent across time. There are certain sort of perhaps human virtues like uh, loyalty, humility, kindness, those things perhaps you could say do have a sort of resonance across periods. But generally speaking, I'm very much of Ronald's view that, that you shouldn't try and judge the figures of the past, you know, on, on modern day standards, because there is no way that they could possibly be expected to live up or down to those. It 
completely ignores the, the historical environment that they grew up in. And those environments change so fast. I mean, even within one's own lifetime, uh, things change very fast indeed. I think one only has to look at the way that, you know, the boundaries of language that's considered acceptable and non-acceptable in my own lifetime have shifted um, to see that. And I'm sure that all of us sort of sitting in this room today, we may be doing things at the moment which we regard as utterly unexceptionable, which in 50 or 100 years time, people living you know, in this city on these streets may regard as completely abhorrent. How could they ever have thought or said that? So I'm very hostile really to the idea that we should try and judge characters of the past, um, you know, by our own standards. I think we have to try as hard as we can as historians, you know, to see what they had been brought up with, the problems that they felt that they were facing, and what was considered perhaps moral in their own time in the way that they dealt with them, as well as what we would consider moral today. That was Ronald Hutton in conversation with Mark Stoyle talking to me, Matt Elton. And don't forget you can hear more episodes in this series by heading to historyextra.com forward slash great hyphen reputations. 